So let's talk about love. Is there any word or concept that is more written about, sung about, sought after, and mourned over than love? It's in our pop music. It's in our poetry. It is the thing that everyone seems to be seeking or running away from, lifted up by, or broken up about in nearly every narrative. And it's certainly at the heart of every person's story. But love is slippery and hard to pin down as a concept. If we take our cues from country music, which I don't suggest, uh, love is something sentimental or it's something that inevitably breaks your heart. If we listen to pop music, which I don't recommend either as far as defining love, then love is something plastic and self-serving and as temporary as my emotions happen to be. People get mixed up about love. We all do. So has every single culture and every single era of history. But it is telling to me that underneath all the misplaced definitions and expressions of love throughout the ages, it is a human constant that we are ever seeking love. We are ever seeking to know deep in our bones that we are lovable for who we really are and that someone actually loves us for who we really are. But all affirmations of love are not equal. One of the shows that my girls and I have been watching lately is The Voice. It's sort of, you know, a talent show for vocalists, for those of you who haven't seen it. Uh, these vocalists perform uh, and they, they compete against each other to find the one that America thinks is the best. And on the show, there are four coaches. They change season to season. The, the season we're watching has uh, Blake Shelton, John Legend... Gwen Stefani and Kelly Clarkson. They're the, the th four judges. And almost every contestant near the end of the show, there's like 16 of them left. Whenever they perform, like all four of the judges say things like, I love you. And I love your clarity of voice or your range, or you fill in the blank about the quality of a person's voice. And they say it, I love you. It's a nice feeling, I'm sure, to have John Legend say, I just love you. But Kelly Clarkson isn't in the dressing room when the singer is throwing up before going on stage. And John Legend isn't there when, you know, that singer's getting a phone call backstage from the principal at their kid's school uh, saying that they have to deal with a problem. And Blake Shelton doesn't see you when you're at your worst. You see, there's levels of affirmation that are nice, but don't necessarily convince a person that they're deeply loved. Like you can have a thousand followers on Instagram or Facebook friends who say happy birthday once a year, but that sort of love and affirmation is not typically life transforming. In fact, it's generally true that love from those that you know best is more meaningful. Those who see us at our worst as well as our best, those who see us for who we are and still continue to love us, like close friends or, or children and their parents and grandparents or aunts and uncles, spouses, those special people in your life who are with you through thick and thin. Love in these settings is weightier than the approval of social media friends or performance-based accolades. This is the place where love can be transformative because true love endures. True love sees past shame and guilt. True love uh, covers a multitude of sins. True love is fierce commitment to another person when things get hard and messy and when we feel and even act unlovable. 
These are the relationships that create opportunity for transformative love. And these are the relationship that can create our deepest wounds. Just as love from a spouse or a parent is weightier than the applause of someone on social media, the converse is also true. It hurts a lot more when someone who knows us well, someone we have intimacy with, lets us down or says something harsh. It, it, it means a lot more than just getting trolled on social media uh, by someone making a nasty comment. Now, over the past few weeks, we've been engaged in a series called The Lazarus Life, based on a book by the same name written by Stephen Smith and rooted in John chapter 11. And thus far, we've been discovering through the story of Lazarus that if we're being honest with ourselves, there are places in our lives that feel dead, or at least less than fully and abundantly alive. Maybe it's deep shame we carry because of something we did or something that someone else did to us. Maybe it's a deep insecurity or a wound or pain or grief that is crippling us on the inside. Most of us have learned how, how to get by without facing these wounds. And it takes courage to face our wounds. What, what Smith calls in his book, our tombs. It's much easier sometimes to just stay inside the tomb because even though we know we aren't fully alive, we rationalize that well, we're alive enough. We've gotten this far in life. And besides, at least we're comfortable with the landscape inside the tomb. It's become familiar. But what happens when we venture outside? What if we started on the path of healing? I can't easily predict what that would look like, and it scares me. And while we're getting honest, you know, many of the wounds that we carry, much of the reason we have parts of ourselves in the tomb is because somewhere along the line, we were betrayed by someone who was supposed to love us. We were let down by a parent or a teacher or a spiritual leader or an intimate friend or partner. Or we've been the one who has let someone else down, someone under our care or our power or our trust. And if you live long enough, your life probably has examples of being both let down and letting others down. What a mess. No wonder love is such a popular topic in nearly every cultural art form. The very thing we long for is the very thing that is constantly broken, inflicting wound after wound. Is there any hope at all? Well, I believe there is. And I would argue that the one relationship that is the most transformative is our relationship with God. Remember I said, in general, I think that the, the ones who know us best, the ones who are most intimate with us, those are the ones who have the power to, to express love most deeply, to express the most transformative kind of love. And God is the one who created us and sustains us and redeems us and knows our thoughts and our actions and our complete history. And he loves us still. And I believe that learning to receive his love is both the start to spiritual transformation and the cure to a life stuck in the tomb of despair. The story of Lazarus has been interpreted in many different ways over the years. And one common interpretation is to see the story as a way of communicating the power of Jesus and the glory of God. You know, Jesus could have just healed Lazarus from a distance with a simple word, but raising someone from the dead, now that is impressive. 
Who is this man who can raise people from the dead? And this interpretation of the passage is valid, and it supports a high view of Jesus, a view that is in line with the four Gospels and the New Testament letters. But we've been looking at the story in a way that's not only through this theological lens, not only through what the story says about, say, the divinity of Jesus, but also through a historical personal lens. Like, what would it have been like to be part of this whole experience? What did it feel like to be Lazarus, to be sick, to be slipping into death without Jesus at your side or even intervening in any way? What was it like to be Mary and Martha? What anguish did they experience when they had to make the decision or when they chose to make the decision to send a messenger to retrieve Jesus to come back to Bethany at once? After all, it had been in Bethany not long before this event that the authorities had nearly stoned Jesus. They wanted to kill him. And calling Jesus back to this town would have been asking him to risk his life again. Even more, what was it like for Mary and Martha when Jesus lingered, when he didn't come right away, when he didn't do what they had hoped and wanted and expected him to do, when he didn't heal Lazarus? You see, if we focus on the theological reading of the text, we end up with great doctrine. But doctrine alone doesn't transform lives. Jesus wept. He grieves death. Jesus called for the stone to be removed from the tomb, and Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. In a strictly theological reading, we might say, look at that. Jesus spoke and it happened. Just like in the beginning of creation, just like Jairus' daughter, just like that moment when the storm obeyed Jesus' command, who is this man that even death shudders at his voice? And we would be right to read it this way. When Jesus speaks, things happen. He alone has the word of life. But there's more to the story. It's not an either-or type of reading. This wasn't just the voice of a distant, powerful being. It wasn't even the voice of a warm, benevolent creator calling one of his own from the grave. This was the voice of Jesus calling his friend by name. This was Jesus, the one who wept over Lazarus, the one who wept with Mary and Martha, the one whom the crowd said, look at how he loved Lazarus. It wasn't just the voice of a powerful man or even the voice of God. This was the voice of the Jesus who loves. It's the voice of love. The voice of Jesus that can call us forth and give us new life when the voices of the world or the voices in our heads are telling us we're condemned or shameful or done for or worthless. To be clear, I am not talking about God speaking to us in some general sense. You know, if you hang around Christian circles long enough, or if you read widely enough in Christian literature, you'll find all sorts of writings and sayings and stories of God speaking to people. And usually this kind of speaking is in terms of consolation or in terms of discernment. So consolation is sort of uh, the sort of speaking in which people experience God comforting them or experiencing the nearness of God. And that's not what we're talking about here. And discernment, of course, is the art of listening to God when making decisions. 
a vocational decision or a relationship decision, a major purchase or whether or not to move to this place or that place. There's a lot written about methods of spiritual discernment. And I've worked with some of you in exploring the Ignatian discernment process. But that's not what we're talking about here. We are not talking about audible voices or tingles down your spine or writing on the wall. All things that are possible with God, but not necessarily to be expected or necessarily even to be sought after. No, what I'm talking about and what I believe Stephen Smith is getting at here is hearing the voice of Jesus in terms of experiencing the love of Jesus. I'm talking about the well-worn path of the voice of Jesus through Scripture. And while there are many approaches to this, I want to name four. The first approach is by far the most important, and it forms the foundation for the other three. It is, quite simply, to listen to the Scriptures as if they're speaking to you. Most modern American Christians, frankly, aren't very good at reading the Bible. That's just what the statistics say from numerous, numerous polls. But those that are occasional or regular readers of the Bible are typically good at being American about it. And so that means a couple of things. One is you're good at accomplishing goals like reading through the Bible in a year. I'm doing that now. Uh, or we're good at being busy, which means that we read the Bible in little snippets, typically compacted in a devotional. So we're reading a little bit of Bible and then a lot of what someone else thinks about the Bible. And typically we are good at doing that a few times a week, says the studies. And my hunch is, um, from personal experience, is that sometimes you cram all of them in, a, in one night, the night that your Bible study is supposed to be talking about them. Okay. But what we're not particularly good at as American Christian readers is being still and sitting with the God behind the text that we're reading. And I want to suggest that it is just the sort of reading that can help us receive the love of Jesus. You see, long before devotionals and Bible reading plans, the way people sat under the authority of the scripture was by meditating on the sayings of Jesus or the teachings of the apostles for periods of time. And I'll just suggest a simple approach. Take a passage. Consider uh, Matthew eleven twenty five. It's familiar to most of you. Come to me, all you who are weary and have overburdened yourselves, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now you've heard it preached on, you may have studied it for a small group or, or a class that you were taking at some point. You have come to know, probably, that the yoke is a reference for a rabbi's teaching and how radical it would have been for a teacher to express vulnerability and gentleness in public. And you can come to a cognitive appreciation that this is a glorious teaching. You could probably say, Jesus is amazing. No one offers the life he offers. No God or teacher with such power and authority has ever been this gentle and loving and gracious and good. And you would be right in thinking these things. The passage teaches us such things. But understanding it doesn't mean experiencing it. It's been said that the longest journey in the Christian life is the distance between your head and your heart. 
How can we make that journey? Well, we can attempt to receive these words of Jesus, the voice of love, as words to us. So, Chris, come to me. I see that you are weary. I know the burdens you bear. I know that the burdens are wounds from the past. I know how these wounds have encouraged you to take on burdens that aren't healthy, that aren't yours to carry. Chris, I want to give you rest. You can't keep living the way you've been living. It will kill you. I have more for you. Take my yoke upon you. Try my rhythms of rest and work of play and practice on for size. Trust me, I'm gentle. I hear your yabuts. I hear your resistance. I'm in no hurry. I want life for you. What is keeping us from sitting with the words of Jesus like that? Do we get bored? Does the intimacy scare us? Are we afraid that we're going to miss out by not reading more broadly? That somehow we're going to miss a nugget of truth? Or do we just have other ways of coping with our lives? What if you sat with Matthew eleven twenty five, Or John 1, in which Jesus asks the disciples, What are you seeking? What if you asked, or what if you sat with Jesus and heard him say, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? What if you sat with that for a week, for a month? What conversation, what, what, would, you, what would you offer to Jesus as an answer? Or what if you sat with John 5, where Jesus asks, do you wish to get well? And you go through the litany of excuses and, and the resistance to, to hearing him. Or John 15, where, where Jesus calls us to abide in him and, and later on declares, I call you friends. And you know, it's not just Jesus' words or the red letters, as they say. Uh, you know, John 17, uh, in that prayer, Jesus is praying to the Father and he says, I do not ask on the behalf of these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word. See, Jesus authorizes the word of the apostles to be faith-filled. And so we might hear the voice of Jesus through Paul, who tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And you might just want to live in Romans 8 for a season and receive that as the voice of love toward you. See, the scriptures are the foundation for hearing the voice of love, the voice that calls us forth from our tombs. Will we take the time to listen to the voice of the Good Shepherd? Now, building on the foundation of the scriptures, there are three other ways we might hear the voice of Jesus. And one of those ways is through the voice of others when they speak the words of scripture. The great preacher and teacher of preachers, Daryl Johnson, wrote a soliloquy for preachers that includes these words. He writes, When preachers speak, the preacher's speech, the preacher speaks. Preaching the word of the preacher is the word of the preacher. That's not to say that every word preachers speak is the word of God. If you hear a preacher say something like that, run far and run fast. But what I am saying is that when we read the words of Jesus, or when I preach the actual text of Jesus, you are hearing the words of Jesus. And it doesn't have to be preachers. It can be any other human being declaring the word of God. 
You know, the other day, um, actually several weeks ago, uh, Jen Milson has done such a great job with our children's ministry that was Samara who spoke a, a word of scripture to me uh, to, to, uh, to correct me on something. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll just say that to myself. But it, from the voice of babes, right? Uh, the word of God through the people of God can be encouraging. It can be convicting. It can point out where we've gone astray just as much as it could affirm us. And then to take this a step further, I believe we can experience the result of the voice of Jesus through the acts of other people. You know, there are times when it seems that God is silent to us, either where we're not hearing him in scripture or we're not um, in a season where we're, we're going to him in scripture, where we're, our ears are deaf to the words of preachers or to people who are speaking the word of God to us. But there are times when the voice of God is there in the encouragement of a brother or sister in Christ. It's there when someone is sharing a meal with us or lending a shoulder to cry on or caring enough to invest in your life. Even when you, or especially when you, feel like you don't have much to offer back. And finally, God can speak even when he's silent. We can experience the voice of love when we can't hear the voice if we practice the discipline of thanksgiving or, or just paying attention. There have been seasons in my life when I've been carried along by the grace of God in the natural beauty or in the awe of shared love with another person or in the mystery of the cosmos. When we begin to pay attention to the wonders all around us, we will find a world full of God's beauty and grace, piercing the darkness of pain and struggle that, that seems to be surrounding us all the time. There are times, even as a student of Scripture and a preacher of the Word, that I must rely on what I, I trust is true, even when I don't experience it in the moment. Life is fragile, and the soul is shy, and it is weary of being crushed. You don't have to be alive very long to have had your soul crushed multiple times. To love is to risk being broken. But take heart. The God who created you and sustains you is the same God who loves you unconditionally. And I want to close just by asking you to receive this prayer from Paul, who desires that we should experience the voice of love. He writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner person, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses mere knowledge, that you might be filled up to all the fullness of God.